0: Well so thank you for being part of this this morning.
1: No, I commend both of you. I think um, A, for your service, and B, a platform where, um, as minority men, we can communicate on not only what the future of medicine would, should look like and would look like in the, in the care, spirit, specifically, that affects African-Americans. We have clearly seen that healthcare care systems that are not operating on an even playing field can be can lead to devastating consequences, and you can see what's been going on with the with the pandemic and how disproportionately minority groups have been affected. Our groups, our people have been affected. So I think this is a wonderful platform that you guys have,
0: and I, I have to really commend you and uh, inviting me to the show. Yeah, thank you. And and one of those things about technology, which Marcus is a little bit more versed in than I am, but he knows a lot more about (laughs) social media and YouTube and all this kind of stuff. Our take on it is me being the Gen X, being the old guy, and Marcus being a millennial. We kind of want to share those different perspectives on healthcare because there are things that people just don't know. We had a discussion last week about insurance. What determines what portion of the insurance company will cover versus what we have to our responsibility. So these are, you know, we're trying to have really good, good topics. And I know Marcus mentioned that today, um, the topic is on technology. And how have you seen technology in healthcare? I'm cross-trained in
1: neurosurgery and orthopedics. And I do, my area of focus is spinal diseases scoliosis, adult and pediatrics, spinal tumors, disorders that affect elderly patients, and then you know, and brain tumors. And if you think about 1995, and you think about where you were in 1995, how you communicated in 1995, and how you received and played music in 1995. Mm-hmm. And fast forward to 2000, but that, you know, at that time, you know, cell phones weren't very prevalent. Mm-hmm. We probably had a, a, a Walkman, right? It was cassette based. That's what I had. (laughs) Um, And you, you know, you had all these mixtapes, right? And then you fast forward to 2002 and cell phones are becoming more prevalent. We have CD players, but cell phones are prevalent, but it it, it wasn't really integrated into your life, right? It was, you still kept a separate calendar. You still kept your physical maps that you used to drive back and forth to places that you weren't very familiar with. So you had these technologies that were existing, but they, they weren't quite integrated into your lives the way things are today. Now you think about 2020 and I don't know about you, but I rely on my cell phone for everything, mm-hmm. for my music, for my calendar, for everything. Mm-hmm. And I want you to think about technology for 20 and 30 years from now, as being just like the journey that I described to you with how you receive music and how you communicate. And there are multiple facets of this, there are multiple subdomains that are currently being developed, some of which are in clinical practice today, but others that would be in clinical practice 20, 30 years from now. Stuff that you only think about in sci-fi movies. Mm -hmm. And I want you to think about telehealth and sensors. If you get sick today, you know you're sick because you feel odd. You have a fever. Your body hurts. Something happens. I want you to think about a future where you have sensors that are be floating in your blood bloodstream. Sensors that can pick up biomarkers for disease even before it becomes symptomatic. And not only identify those biomarkers, but they can send that information to you to alert you to the fact that you have this biomarkers in your system, and send that information to your primary care physician who says, hey, Marcus or Keith, you need to come in to see us because we have, we have these elevation in these biomarkers that are potentially problematic. I want you to think about telehealth. 10 years ago, for you to see a physician, you had to go drive to the hospital, park your car, figure out time away from your schedule. But now I can conduct a clinical visit just like we're talking today, where I want you to imagine a future where your your heart rate, your blood pressure, your body, your basal metabolic rate, basic chemistries are taken from you from these sensors in your blood sent to me in real time, and I can see you have a conversation that we can talk in real time. No need to come in to check your heart rate, your blood pressure, or basic lab work because the sensors are doing that. So that's just one example of how I think uh, telehealth and sensors and the multiple that I'm going to later would would change the uh, the future of medicine.
2: Man, Dr. Dog, I just want to give you, if I give you a biggest round of applause right now, I would. <laughs> From the history of technology to that evolution and then getting to the biomarkers, which is excellent because Keith, I do recall our first conversation on the podcast was exactly that conversation, right? So I, I, I definitely see that future coming. Yeah. I, and just I just described. And with that first
0: conversation, I think I suggest you watch a movie called The Circle. You did.
2: You did. Have you ever um, seen that,
0: Doctor? I, I have not seen The Circle. Maybe okay. I should
2: add it to my list. <laughs>
0: yeah, it's it's uh, who's in it? Tom Hanks Tom. and uh, the actress from Not
2: Julia Roberts.
0: No, Tom Hanks and she's in the uh, Harry Potter movies. She worked for a company kind of like not like Google, but it was called The Circle. She worked in this big complex. And they tracked everything that she was doing. She had to take some kind of liquid. And from that liquid, the doctor can tell what was wrong with her. She had some kind of technology and some wearables to where it was tracking her on an ongoing basis. So Marcus is kind of being being bashful a little bit because he did the graduate studies at NYU. And he did a research paper on millennials and technology. And it kind of got my interest. I guess he called me the, the old dog and so I don't know too many new tricks. But by reading his research paper, I'm like, you know, this can be the future of, of medicine because millennials are doing everything with their phones. And so,
2: so yeah. And also also with that movie, The Circle, they, they had the biometrics inside of them. They are monitoring their health, but they also brought a social media aspect to it. And I think social media, is a key part of the future that you know all, ty- all physicians, independent physicians, hospitals, RNs, like everyone's going to have to bring that into their everyday practice of how they're engaging or at least presenting their brand as a doctor to the community, to their patients, right? So it's gonna be a way to engage, to show patients what you're doing differently from other physicians but also showing that human connection that all physicians do have. The current generation and how we receive information
1: is different and it's currently evolving. And, and I think the pandemic sort of highlights the reasons, multiple reasons for movement more aggressively uh, into this space. I, I see it not only as a platform for communicating with patients, but also for conducting clinical trials. So we could use it in multiple ways to improve and streamline the care that we currently deliver and how patients receive receive that information. So I couldn't agree with you more. I
0: couldn't agree with you more. As a a spine surgeon, how are you able to assess your patients on telehealth? Is that something that you would need a patient to be there physically? 90% of what of of what I get from a patient
1: is from clinical conversation, from a conversation. So I listen to you and they describe their problems and where they're hurt and where they're having um, new numbness and tingling or sensory motor deficits, and I can sort of isolate where that region might be. I wouldn't be, I would not be able to do a comprehensive physical examination like I would in the clinic, mm-hmm. um, in person, but I could still elicit 90% of what I need. I can understand which imaging studies they might need with additional tech and blood work they might need. So I can still conduct about 90% of my evaluation remotely. Now, I think it's a, it's a, you know, I, I think we shouldn't create a false conflict between the this need for virtual technologies that improve ability to communicate with patients and that Physical contact medicine is still an art. It still requires that empathy and that touch is still important When I see patients and I touch them and I hold their hands and I tell them what what's wrong with them or what's not wrong with them is no technology That can that can do that. So I think while technology is important and I think it would continue to be an important part of how we deliver care I think that empathy that one gets from being you know face-to-face communication or feeling another human being's touch i think that's still necessary so we we have to find a way to get to this new normal where we don't sacrifice one for the other
2: how do you think how do you think other other surgeons or physicians you know your colleagues are accepting new technologies such as like telehealth or other other softwares that are out there to engage with patients
1: we have had 850 different providers at the UT Southwestern Healthcare System adopt telehealth, which is wonderful because that tells you that across the board, across the board, across specialties, people adopting these technologies. I think there was a steep learning curve, especially if you have been practicing medicine for a long time with a different model. It was a steep learning curve, but but across the board there's widespread acceptance that this is the future. I think telehealth is the way I see it is just 10% of the Mm -hmm. magnificent things that are going on. I mean, if you think about virtual reality and augmented reality, and you think about what that means of merging this virtual and real spaces together. And for people who are not, you know, technologically savvy, what virtual reality means for me as a surgeon is I can perform the operation without ever making an incision. I can get a CT scan of a patient. Who has pathology and i can go through layer by layer of my approach to the pathology without ever making an incision so that when that patient sees me when i get them to the operating room i understand all the challenges that i might have all the unique things about that patient's anatomy to deliver the best technically excellent surgeon that money can buy you don't need cadavers and that formaldehyde scent you know to learn anatomy we can
2: do it virtually. You know, I never thought about virtual reality as far as that with the cadavers, as far as how, how the operation goes for training. I do know as far as veterans who have been injured in the line of duty, missing legs, MTs, that that three D virtual reality gives them that feeling of like, Hey, I can use this and it helps them stimulate the mind where they can recover. And another way and in other ways right like maybe walking stimulating their minds uh, as far as music and stuff like that so the virtual i remember when i was at my undergrad for Rutgers, i had to take this class called second life and it's like a a 3d virtual world where people would having they're having actual jobs professions and they i think it was the mayo clinic who had conducted online training within that virtual setting for healthcare providers. It wasn't as in depth as the 3D, but it was just, I guess, a virtual setting. So that was back in 2012. Yeah. And then since then, it's just, I'm pretty sure it's like evolved.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and certainly as a vet, you probably have friends who have been in combat zones or you yourself might be in the combat zone, who've suffered these devastating injuries. Mm-hmm. Um, oftentimes, unable to move the arm, the limbs, the arms, the legs. And if you think about 30, 40, 50 years ago, maybe even 10 years ago, that was a death sentence, right? You mm-hmm. quadriplegic. What are we doing today in medicine to address that? We have brain machine interfaces. We brain machine interfaces to say that if you have a spinal cord injury that historically would have rendered you unable to engage in some of the activities that you need for daily living, now we can, use these interfaces to control an exoskeleton that allows you to, to write, to drink, to even potentially drive in future, to walk, to move around. Mm-hmm. So
2: and I feel like a lot of people aren't accepting about the technology because we got old people like Keith who, who don't really understand how to utilize this technology. So then a lot of people are a little hesitant. You know, so you need so you may need that family member, that millennial family member to educate them, right? Sorry, sorry Keith, no <laughs> You get the error
0: message. You call somebody and your voicemail—it goes straight to voicemail. Yeah. I think the other day she finally she like, "What's this?" When when the line is busy, get that uh, uh, uh sound. Yeah. She never heard that. So as a fourteen-year-old, they're like, yeah, they're learning different things. And again, me just being the, the old guy, I just use my cell phone just to text and dial numbers.
2: You know. and sometimes it blows my mind just thinking about FaceTime. I'm like, if my grandmother was still alive today and seeing FaceTime, I don't think she'd be very accepting of that. It's just like she used to dial from a rotary phone. Yeah. So I can only imagine what technology is going to be in the next five years, 10 years from now for myself, right? Because I see it, I see it evolving.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, and I think it's, when you think about the, the older adults who might have had, admittedly, have to learn a new model. The reality is, if you think about how you got around 30 years ago, you called somebody who gave you directions to get from point A to point B. So you got to look for this street, look for this mango tree, look for the pink house, make a rent, and so on. And then we had MapQuest, right? Yep. Which, is, which I think is now that I think about it, it's such a hazard. Because <laughs> if you look at it, this piece of paper, you're going like say, 75 miles an hour. We have MapQuest. And, yeah, you know, people adopted, and even our parents were able to use MapQuest. And then we had these digital platforms that can talk to you and give you directions, and now we have your phone, and now it's built into cars. So I think it's going to be a learning curve. Not everybody's going to get to the same place, but I think all of society is going to move to a new normal. We're going to not, we're going to regress to a new mean. And by regression, I don't necessarily mean to regress down. We're going to
0: regress up. To a new mean, which is a more technologically savvy society, yeah. even for the older adults. So for me, I don't look at it as I do want to adopt technology, but I'm hesitant to put certain things on my phone because of trust. It's check off on so many things, but we, feel, or well, I, I, I can say for my generation, you know, the Gen X. I'm assuming that the government is listening, making purchases. They're able to set trends and then pull things. Things will come up on my email or on my social media. I think it is just more trust. How can somebody get around the trust factor when it deals with technology? I want you to think about genome-wide sequencing. I want you to think about being able to sequence a human
1: genome in minutes. Now it takes a lot longer to do it, so although it's available, it's not widely used. I want you to think about a society where you sequence your whole genome, your entire genome, we know what diseases you're predisposed to, and we can intervene much earlier on before you start developing symptoms or change some of the habits that might increase your odds or your your likelihood of having that disease. If you have that genome sequence, that genome data available, and the genome data says you're predisposed to get disease X, and that information becomes available to your employers. The information becomes available to insurance companies. And insurance companies say, well, if you're predisposed to get disease X, you're higher likely to get the disease X. Perhaps we ought to deny you coverage because the way we make money, our financial model is actually based on taking care of people who don't need much health care. That's, that's how we make, increase our profit margins. How do you protect against that? I think that's, the, that's the, the most important question that we need to address as a society. How do we collect all of this information that perhaps can alter human disease patterns, can alter how we treat diseases, can alter how we diagnose diseases, but at the same time have these privacy, I mean, uh, respect these privacy issues that can have devastating consequences. And I don't think anyone has the answer. I don't think the, uh, our congressmen. Now, senators and our leading legal thinkers have an answer as to how to deploy this. What I would say now is we're changing, we're creating new laws as we go along to protect that data. And if you can think about what happens with your your with Facebook now, for instance, where you search a website that sells certain shoes, and all of a sudden, all the advertisements you get are for shoes. How do you protect against that? We are now seeing Congress putting forward some laws. To protect us citizens against that type of advertisement and that type of uh, of that type of commercial prey, I don't know what that would look like in healthcare. But if that, what we need to create that's the biggest, biggest, biggest hurdle to widespread adoption of some of these technologies that I think can really change the way we we uh, diagnose disease and treat diseases. I don't have an answer. That's a long winded way of saying mm. I don't have an answer. It's going to have to be one of these incremental things and we'll we'll make mistakes as we go along it's going to be one of these incremental steps that we take until we we arrive at a place that everyone is happy with okay to
2: make you more comfortable Keith. (laughs) 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 but what was the one i thought there there was a platform you said that was uh, on the rise of coming that focused on the protection protection of uh of, of of data yeah
1: I don't there isn't isn't one that's that comes to mind i know that one of the things that we use now where we have very strong hipaa laws but that has to yeah. be hipaa as it currently exists covers medical records that are in the hospital physically in the hospital or in an electronic cloud that's controlled by the hospital and we have very very strong laws that protect against your information. But what happens when you have sensors that collect information that transmit that data to your primary care physician or gives you that data that somebody else can have access to who is not your primary care physician? Does HIPAA cover those data, Cover that data? I don't know that it does. And I think that's where we need to find new, create new laws that can protect against your personal health information because that's although it's transmitted in a different way and collected in a different way, it's still personal health information.
2: Yeah, hey, I, I and I seen this video, I was doing a little Google research on you, doctor. I seen the video about the length of stay, you know, reducing the patient length of stay. And I, I want to get back to your comment you made back and forth about you know, getting to technology and empathy, right? So if we reduce the length of stay, but we also involve the family member, like we, we require a patient to come through with a family member or a loved one to educate so they can go through the process with you. How do you think that would that would pan out as far as, you know, reducing length of stay and the, ultimately the patient's recovery is to ensure that there is someone at home that has the technology to read and ensure that the patient is following is compliant following the doctor's instructions. Yeah. But also there to relay that empathy, right, as well at home care I guess an at-home caregiver but yeah. from the start of surgery. What what are your thoughts on that?
1: So, you know, one of the things we do excellently well at UT Southwestern is that we have a broad array of staff from, multi, a multi, from different disciplines that help not only get patients ready for an operation, but get them ready for what comes after an operation. We encourage family members to come by, to come with the patient. We educate both the patient and the family members because we realize that length of stay oftentimes is driven by the anxiety of going home. What if I have pain when I go? What if I have some of these other symptoms that uh, I wasn't aware are standards that typically come with this disease process and treatment of this disease process? So having a family member there, I think is hugely important, especially for older adults. The, The way you receive information, the way you recover from illness and surgery or intervention is different from the way your grandmother might be. But I want to point you to something that we are thinking about doing at UT Southwestern. Western on the surgical side, is the precision surgical surgery program. What does that look like? Why do different patients convalesce differently? Why do different patients, same surgery, same surgical team, same pathology, why do they have different lengths of hospital stay? I'll give you an example of a program that we're thinking of developing here at UT Southwestern that I think can help that. If your grandmother is 78 years old and she needs an intervention, shes We are told, and I say, she's a 78-year-old female that has some of these comorbidities. But chronological age and biological age are very different. You have been in, in, with friends who say, oh, she or he looks 78 or are 78, but they look like 50, mm-hmm. or they're 50 years old, but they look like 80. So why are we using chronological age to risk stratify patients for surgery? Why aren't we using biological age? What your cells, how your cells perform to determine how long you recover, you stay in the hospital, how long you convalesce after surgery, how you look after an operation, your likelihood of having a post-operative complication. So one of the things we're doing here at UT Western are beginning to do is look at your cells. You know, look at the, your biological age and say, look, you might be 50, but biologically you look like 40 we think you're gonna recover better from surgery than somebody who's 50, but biologically looks like 80. And my hypothesis is in that case that we can decrease the length of hospital stay. Let me give you another example. If you have back pain, or you have leg pain, or you have any sort of injury that requires pain medications, everybody gets the same cocktail of medications. Doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. We know that certain patients have genetic mutations that allow them to respond differently to different therapies. So why not test patients prior to surgery, understand the genetic mutations they have, understand what medications, opioids are most likely to respond to. And guess what? If you give patients what they're more, like, more likely to respond to, you control the pain and leave the hospital sooner. So, it's, so there are multiple things that we can do by understanding the patient's biology as a surgeon that I think can change the landscape of how we think about postoperative care.
2: I'd never even thought about it like that. Um, just, just the actual biological age. Now, I'm interested to know, is there a way we can find out what is our biological age just according off the, uh, like our cells and DNA, how they recover? Because you're right, that's absolutely important. And yeah. I think that's one age that can fluctuate depending on how you care for yourself, right? It,
1: absolutely, absolutely. And there are studies now that show that if you smoke, for instance, your biological age, you're older if you do things that could potentially affect your health. If you, if you exercise frequently, you can decrease your biological age. And when, let me tell you some of the test methods that you can do that. We can use DNA methylation techniques So we can look at the methylation of your DNA. We know the older you get, the less DNA methylation you have. You can use the length of telomeres. And telomeres are these sequences that, that every time a cell replicates, it shortens over time. And this is, you can use telomeric length to predict biological aging. You can look, use metabolism, how the cells metabolize different chemicals to predict biological aging. So there are different techniques out there are uh, my suspicion. And it's an area of scientific inquiry uh, and has been for quite some time. But I think as we, we, we get some of these research studies out and we start showing that some of these things actually work, that you'll see it more widely available to you. So you'll be able to understand what your biological age is, even though your chronological age says something
2: else. I'll be on lookout for that.
1: <laughs> especially for minorities. You know, we know that we have elevated risk of having cardiovascular Problems. We have elevated risk of having renal kidney problems, of, of having cancers. A lot of these are uh, are related to, to how our bodies respond to inflammation. Uh, we know that chronic inflammation is bad. If you have chronically, if your body is under chronic stress and you're chronically inflamed, uh, these patients have a higher likelihood of a complication. Well, one of the things we are doing in surgery now is understanding how does your body respond to sterile trauma? How does it respond to surgery? do you have a normal acute inflammatory phase that's appropriate or do you have a more chronic phase that can predict complications that can predict poor convalescence after surgery so there are numerous things
2: that we can do let's say if a patient's getting implants in them depending on what what the implant is made of right the titanium if it's a plastic or even how they do 3d printing so maybe the materials that are surgically being implanted in patients can match whatever genes or whatever Kind of reactions they may have from that device going in them as well. I mean, that would be taking a step. Yeah, further. yeah. I,
1: I think most of the implants we use are from you we use inert substances to create those implants. I mean, and, and by by you say by you say when I say inert, it doesn't trigger a massive inflammatory response. So you know, having that. Heat, hip replaced, or you know, that knee replacement you know, or spinal implants, or cochlear implants—it doesn't trigger this massive systemic inflammatory response that, say, mm-hmm. someone who has, who's chronically exposed to, say, smoking, the inflammatory response it triggers there, or someone who's chronically exposed to red meat that triggers a certain type of inflammatory response or someone who is chronically exposed to different types of chemicals. Your body triggers an inflammatory response as a mechanism to fight it. When you use some of these inert substances to create implants, it doesn't trigger the same degree of systemic inflammation. And so you're not as you're not at elevated risk of heart problems. If you have a knee replacement, if if that makes sense.
0: I just did the, the 23andMe. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I think I had to send a two of saliva or something like that, and then I guess they they can kind of test my family heritage or, or something. We should know more about our family so that we are having any kind of health issues. It can be related to. I think family history is one of the most important things when we collect as clinicians.
1: You know, mm-hmm. if if there's a disease that a family member, immediate or extended, might have had might increase your likelihood of having that disease if you're genetically predisposed to it. However, just because you have a genetic predisposition to a disease does not mean that you would get the disease. Just because we have a gene that has been shown to be associated with breast cancer doesn't mean that everybody who has that gene is going to get breast cancer. In fact, only a minority of patients a very small number of patients who actually have that genetic disposition develop the disease so there are other factors like environmental factors that play a role in addition to the genetic predisposition in increasing the likelihood of getting the disease so if you have a genetic predisposition for instance to get lung cancer and you smoke you can imagine that your rate the risk of getting lung cancer for you might be higher than somebody with the same genetic predisposition who doesn't smoke or who doesn't live in an environment where air pollution is is very high versus, versus very low. So that's the caveat to that because there have been numerous reports of, especially, I'll give you an example, of women who have genetic predisposition to breast cancer having prophylactic mastectomies. And the, the question is, well, is that right or wrong? Well, we never knew that she was going to get breast cancer. In fact, she has a very small likelihood of getting breast cancer, but she's having these prophylactic procedures. And I, and I, and I think that's swinging the pendulum way too far. I think there's gonna be a happy medium there. The other thing to think about is when you give these companies your genetic data, you lose control of that data. And what happens to that data with 23andMe, whether they sell it to other commercial, partners, mm-hmm. how they utilize that data. That's, that's, you know, people don't read between the fine prints. It's
2: that uh, trust factor, Keith. See, exactly. <laughs> so, so, you,
1: you know, you ought to be very, you, you ought to be thoughtful about when you put that information out there They collect this data on mass, what happens to that data?
0: So that's just something to keep in the back of your mind. My father was a Rolling Stone. He wasn't active. And so when I was filling out information with my doctor, and they're asking different questions, it's hard for me to answer those because, again, I don't know anything about that. But that's a challenge because I don't know what heart conditions are on my father's side. I don't know any other things, but how can we answer those appropriately? I think the first step is doing everything you can
1: before you get ill to understand the, the, your family health history. And oftentimes you might, while you might not be able to have a conversation with the person directly, you have cousins or aunts or other family members who might have been aware of something that happened. They might have been, oh yeah, you know, they had, they told me remotely that they might have had some heart condition. You don't have to know exactly what heart condition it is. Or one of the common things I hear is, oh yeah, you know, I didn't know. patients don't understand the word scoliosis, which is a curvature of the spine, but they'll say, you know, yeah, I think I had a grandmother who had some crookedness in her spine. And to me that says, okay, that's, she's got scoliosis. Or I think I have a cousin or a father or an uncle who might've had kidney issues. So you might not be able to, while you might not be able to communicate with that person directly to get that information firsthand, the other family members that might be able to be service proxies for that information. It is helpful to have that information before you get ill what i tell patients is look when you get ill calling 30 family members to find out whether anybody had this issue it's hard versus when you get together for thanksgivings when you get together for holidays just trying to sort of build this family tree of family illnesses so that should you ever need to use that you have that information firsthand when we get that family history It really tells us how much more we need to investigate and how we can counsel you. So for for instance, black men like us have higher rates of very aggressive prostate cancer. So if you have a family member who's had prostate cancer, perhaps you should start getting screened slightly earlier. Colon cancer, cancers of the GI tract, we have an elevated risk of this. So perhaps modifying what we eat very early on, getting colonoscopies, getting screened earlier on, rather than maybe at 45 or 50, might be reasonable. All of these things, especially for minority groups that have uh, disproportionately high rates of some of these illnesses, getting this family history is really helped because you can start screening much earlier for the disease.
2: This coming Thanksgiving and during the quarantine, I could just be doing my research on that. <laughs> but that, Dr. Dogra, I really want to thank you for joining us on the show today. We don't want to take up too much of your time. We know you're busy. No problem, no problem. Definitely, thank you so much. Hey, KP, do you got any questions for Dr. Adag before we close out?
0: Oh, no, I appreciate your, your, your time and just really sharing a lot of information with us. And again, we're going to keep putting the message out there and see so what we can do, you know, to better not just our health, but, you know, our community's health as well. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm grateful for the invitation. I'm happy to
1: speak with you all at any time. I am, it's a passion of mine. Uh, to uh, improve not only individual health, but population health. And the first step of that is having informed uh, patients. And we have certainly seen from the COVID pandemic that an uneven healthcare landscape that affects certain groups disproportionately can have devastating consequences. So whatever I can do to keep your audience involved, uh, please uh, feel free to reach out again.
2: Okay. How can our audience and listeners uh, reach out to you in any way, whether it's social media, email?
1: Med. J-A-D-O-M-E-D is my Instagram. My email is O-W-O-I-C-H-O dot A-D-O-J-W-A at gmail.com. I'm happy to not only speak with this audience, but speak to high schools, minority groups that want to learn more about health and uh, some of these emerging technologies for young college students thinking about where should they invest their time and uh, so on. I think being informed is the first stage. I see myself as a conduit to sort of getting that information out there. One of the things that we're
0: doing is we're putting a little more focus on remote patient monitoring. One of the technology and the platforms that we have is engaging patients to make them more aware of their surgical education and really just having that significant other involved in their care as well. I think just having that that support can be beneficial to, to patients. And so outside of what we do on a day-to-day basis, you know, I work with um, you know, nurseries, I'm a spine distributor. And so we're trying to kind of create an initiative to where we can include remote patient monitoring into this as well. How
1: patients are cared for globally outside of providers, Mm -hmm. members and loved ones, if you have the luxury of having a loved one who can take time to care for you, understanding how those loved ones feel, how they can be better empowered to take care of those patients. It's an area that hasn't been studied much but it's one that I commend you guys for for really making a headway on because part of, you know, 10% of the process is what I do. 90% of the healing process is what happens after they leave the hospital. And loved ones and family members play an integral role, role in that process. So I commend you guys for really making some, bringing this to light because I think from, from a clinical standpoint, that's another area of investigation that we haven't, de- you know, dedicated too much resources to. Definitely. definitely
2: definitely but thank you again and have a great monday and enjoy the rest of your week doctor same team thank you all right thanks